Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Meredith Fuchs. Now, Meredith is currently the general counsel at Plaid. She's been the general counsel for the last year or so. And what a marvellous story (laughs) Meredith has. Talk about a learning machine and always being up for a challenge. If you look at Meredith's career, that's exactly what she's done. She's been up for a challenge, always learning right through. She's had time at the US House of Reps as a chief investigative counsel, also at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, at Capital One. And the consistent theme that you hear exactly that. She's learning. She's up for a challenge. She's expanding her skills. And she's, it's actually quite a remarkable journey. I had a great time speaking with Meredith and, uh, and learned a lot. And I'm sure you will too. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Meredith, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thank you so much, Jim. I'm so delighted to be here with you. Fantastic. Now, Meredith, you're currently, of course, the general counsel of Plaid, but you weren't always the general counsel. You've had a life before that. Take us back. Tell us as far back as you'd like to go. Tell us how it all started for you, the interest in law, perhaps the early part of your career, and always like to talk about any kind of formative moments in those early years. Yeah, well, I'll tell you sort of the whole story because I've had a very eclectic legal career and I've been in all branches of government, nonprofit, for-profit, so um, it's been fun. I mean, I think I've always wanted to be a lawyer and I tried to think about why that is and I think it's really a couple of things. I always have the sense that the law affected society. And so if you understood the law, you could impact society. And so that's always been in my head. It's a little bit of a to kill a mockingbird thing. You can use law as a force for good. And speaking of which, can I just say, I just saw the play last weekend, To Kill a Mockingbird, here in New York, and what an absolute delight that was, and brought back all the memories of young, but you're absolutely right, I'd feel exactly the same way, that the, the kind of social impact bit. So anyway, I thought I'd just call that out. Well, I saw it too. I saw it before COVID. I saw the play in New York before COVID, and I thought it was wonderful as well. It was a great show. Well, so I went to school just like everyone. I went to college. I actually went to a college in London, which is a bit unusual. Came back to New York, where I'm from, and had a job in retail at Macy's Herald Square. And it was during the holiday season when you worked sort of round the clock that I submitted my applications to law school. I went to NYU. And I actually, my first job out of law school was at Public Citizen where I did consumer protection work, which is a consistent theme throughout my life, you'll see. From there, I did two clerkships, two federal judges in the Washington, D.C. federal courts, wonderful experiences, went to a law firm. Then I went from there to a nonprofit. See, I'm getting all the different variations in. Now, don't skip over the law firm too quickly. We will come back to the law firm side and do a bit of a deeper dive there. So, Okay, absolutely. 
Um, I went to a nonprofit. And from there, I actually went to work on Capitol Hill as chief investigative counsel for the Committee on Energy and Commerce, which was a really, really important part of my career, just because I learned so much about kind of being a Washington lawyer there. And from there, I went to what is like one of the most exciting parts of my career, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where I was part of the startup team, the general counsel, and the deputy director when I left. From there, I went to Capital One. So I went into in-house private sector work for the first time at a great company. And from there, I went to Plaid. So I've done lots of things. So we're going to do a deep dive on on most of those if we can. But looking at it more high level, what is kind of... What's driving you for the different kinds of experiences? Is it is it a deliberate choice to, brought, for example, get a whole lot of different experiences, to develop different skill sets? What's kind of guiding your career path to give you the kind of exposure that you've had? Well, I mean, one thing is I love being a lawyer. And so I'm just attracted to interesting opportunities where I can challenge myself and grow. But more specifically, the two key things for me are mission and people. So I'm always looking for a great mission. And I want to work with people who I enjoy working with. And that kind of goes throughout all of the choices that I've made. It's funny you call those two things out. Mission, the purpose, what am I, how am I making an impact? And people, I always say it is always about the people. You work with and identify and, and help kind of develop great people and watch great people and, and be mentored by great people. There is no, that is such an important part of anyone's development. And we spend so much time at work. If you don't have the people bit right, it can be really miserable. But if you get it right, I just feel like it's it's like rocket fuel to your own personal career, um, the career of others, and just to the enjoyment of you know what you do 12 or however many hours a day. Well, I mean, I totally agree with you. You said, you mentioned like how much time you spend with people you work with. You spend at least 40 hours a week with people you work with, which is more time than you spend with anyone else. So it's really nice when you can feel like you're part of something shared, a shared purpose, shared mission, and you're part of a team. Like I love, I love that feeling. In fact, one of the things that kind of I find very moving, and this is sort of odd, I think, is when I see people on my team working together it just makes me feel so happy that like we're able to communicate and together solve problems. It's really wonderful. Well, it's funny. Now, I've got to say, given the last 18 or 20 months that we've all experienced, I've now had really the benefit, not that this is about me, but the last week or so, I've been back in an office environment with the team here in New York and the energy, the camaraderie, the collaboration – it was almost brought a tear to my eye when I have I couldn't in fact I couldn't even sleep well this morning. I was so excited about coming back in and seeing it. And I talk about, you know, some of us feed off and deliver energy just being with people. I'd feel like I'm I'm the same way. I need people and I need the energy. And when I actually it's funny you've said that because I've I've experienced that just in the last week and it's been such a contrast to what we've had in the last year or two that I have just it's I've really noticed and I've noticed how important it has been certainly to me personally it sounds like it's something similar for you too. It is but you know it's interesting I came to Plaid during the pandemic so for most of the first year that I was at Plaid I did not meet anyone in person and it's interesting, you know, obviously, it seems a little odd not to meet people in person who you work with, but we were able to establish relationships. It's not, it's, 
But still, when we finally got to come together socially, people were like so happy and couldn't stop talking and were effusive. So there's something special about being together. Yeah. L- let me tell you, I was not short on delivering hugs all round because, it, you know, it is just, I think, it's something that I think we've all probably sorely missed over the last couple of years. Okay, so if you look at the different phases of your career, let's start with the law firm phase. What are the things that kind of stand out for you and that you think you've taken with you to the next phase of your career? Let's start with your time. I think you're both an associate and a partner. It's Wiley Rain, is it? Tell me, what do you still remember? What What parts of you were kind of really formed during your time there? And then I'll ask you the same about the other aspect, the the other times of your career. Well, I mean, a couple of things. In terms of one of the first lessons I learned, which has stuck with me, is that when you're writing for a client or you're solving problems for a client, you need to kind of get yourself into the client's head. And I think that's something that a lot of junior lawyers don't know. They're so used to like researching and then writing their dry memo. But each client has their own voice And if you can figure that out, you're going to be a better lawyer. And so I remember one of my first assignments when I was at law firm, it was a very short letter and I rewrote it like four times to try to get that right. That's what the partner had me do. And it was really just to teach me, you need to speak to this client in their, in language they will understand. And I still, I still feel that way. That's like an absolutely essential lesson. And I was going to say, that's no doubt a skill. I mean, as you have different clients in different jobs and different stakeholders with themselves different and they bring themselves, they've got different backgrounds, different skills, being able to put yourself in their shoes so that the way that you communicate communicates well with them, I, I, think, I think that's a life skill actually and the better that you are at doing that, I, I think and I've seen some people that it's like a superhuman power the way they're able to communicate and understand who they're speaking to and then put themselves in, in their shoes and, and be able to effectively communicate. I just think it's, uh, it's one of those things that I wish someone had sat down with me really early on and say, this is what you've got to focus on. No, I think that's right. I mean, as a lawyer, if you can understand the other parties that you're dealing with, you're going to be so much more powerful. You know, if you're in a negotiation and you know what the other party actually cares about and actually wants, you're going to be able to figure out how to talk to them. I feel like it comes like throughout my entire life, that ability to understand the other side has been almost, it's like a superpower when it emerges. Yeah, that's how I'd call it. I, I, I love that. And tell me, okay, so as in your time at the US House of Reps as, as the Chief Investigative Counsel for the Committee of, I think, as Energy and Commerce, what do you remember, if you like, or what, what has stayed ingrained with you since that time or that experience? Number one, Congress has a lot of power. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> You don't want to get in their zone of interest if you can avoid it. And if you are going to get in their zone of interest, you just have to prepare and be straight with them. I mean, I was involved in helping to run the investigation of the BP oil spill, and my committee did five hearings on that. It was incredibly impactful. And, you know, while it was a natural disaster from the perspective of someone running the investigation, exciting time. Because we were able to get the corporations involved to come right into um, our offices to talk to us about what happened, to give us information and records, and then frankly, to testify in front of the committee. And it just, it showed how 
when something's important, Congress can act in order to draw attention to it and to address the issue. So that was a really, really important lesson for me to see that and to be part of it was really important for me. And clearly, again, aligning with you know, really the social impact part of, you know, the, the career that's important, you know, well, what's important to you. So I can certainly see that there's probably not too many more significant cases over the last couple of decades to be involved in. Well, the other thing that was very helpful I mean, I mentioned earlier, it's how I learned to be kind of a Washington lawyer. There's a whole practice that relates to congressional legislative issues that I didn't have insight into before I worked there. And if you're going to be, well, it was helpful when I went to the CFPB later. It's been helpful since I've been in corporations is to begin to understand reputational issues and brand issues and the risk Really, if you screw things up and, you know, because trying to rebuild a reputation is a lot harder than sustaining a good reputation. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. And it sounds like your time at CFPB was a, it was a clearly a highlight of your career. T- tell me why. Well, I mentioned I was part of the startup team. So, you know, we had to build an agency from nothing. And the lawyers, of which I was one, we had to start working immediately to like create the author authorization for the agency. Like what was the structure? What were the rules by which we'd operate? So that was fun. I built a legal team from nothing. And I built, I think, frankly, the best legal team that's ever existed. Phenomenal people were Well, people wanted to be part of the CFPB. And what was interesting is some people were afraid to go to a startup agency, but the people who were willing to take the risk, who could deal with the uncertainty and, you know, had the resilience were just the most amazing people and super committed to the mission of protecting American consumers. And so it was, it fulfilled all of those, you know, mission and people needs that I had. And I was able to have an impact on things that I think were positives for our country, you know, from then on. You know, we helped address like the mortgage crisis through new rules for the mortgage industry. I mean, that's really real stuff that will make a difference in the future. And that ability, well, the experience of a creation, whether it's creating a team, an organization, The starting from nothing and then finishing up with something that you are super proud of. And when you're starting from the nothing, it's scary. There's there's risk of failure all around. You don't know what it's going to look like. But I've had a couple of times in my career where, where again, started from nothing and thinking at the time, this is the worst decision I could ever make. Why? But it has always been the most fulfilling because after, because you've got the blank canvas, and then there's something creating. Talk a bit more about that, because I've I can just see from the, how passionate you are about that 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 is a, that is the kind of the legacy stuff. There was nothing there when I started. Now there's something that's living beyond the time that, that I'm there. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, I mean that's really true. And some of I mean some of it is the legacy of what we did. So for example, there's a consumer response system now that exists where people can make complaints and the agency will act on them. So there's some very concrete things, but the other piece frankly is the people who I worked with and seeing all the things they've gone on to do. I mean, I kind of have joked about this that you know, I hired all these lawyers. They came, most of them were like 
young, single, early in their careers. Over the time I was there, I saw them all sort of get married or have kids or go on to other jobs in more senior roles. And it's just really kind of neat to see the progression of these these really talented people. So that that was really important for me as well. And it's, it's funny because when we think about our careers, we usually actually don't think about the case that we won. Or we, what we think about is the impact that we had on others and and the progression that the others made. And, and it, again, it sounds like exactly the, the way that you feel, watching people grow in their own careers, develop, there, there is some there is almost nothing more personally satisfied in a professional context, working with great people and watching them grow. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I don't want to like diminish the importance of the bureau itself. Having a regulator that's focused on consumer protection and, and financial services has been super, super impactful for our country. And, you know, and there's like, and it's going to continue to exist. That's the other thing. Like that legacy doesn't stop. That legacy will go on and hopefully forever. All right, take take me now to. Uh, Capital One, and that was, of course, 2016 to 20, so relatively recent. Key takeaways for you so far as your career and your own personal learnings are concerned? Well, it's kind of interesting. When I left CFPB, you know, I had to decide what I wanted to do next. I knew I wanted to practice law, and I originally assumed I'd go to a law firm. And then one of my friends said to me, you know, if you go to a law firm, you're going to be defending companies who violated the law. But if you go in-house, you'll be able to help a company do the right thing. And, you know, that's exactly what like turned me onto Capital One, which fortunately also, you know, is in my region where I live. And they had a great opportunity as chief regulatory counsel there. And, you know, I mentioned mission and people being a motivator. Some people might say, well, you went to a large bank. How is that, you know, mission driven? But I have to say, Capital One is a real consumer oriented bank and they have a mission to change banking for good. And I felt really proud to work there. I felt proud of the people and the way they approached the work. Our CEO was just a, you know, remarkable guy who had founded the company and had a vision for creating something that would be sustained beyond him. I mean, he's still there. So it was, I really had, I had the great mission and the great people because Capital One is, people are lovely there. I mean, it's a very civil kind of place. And what was nice is it, it was a large bank, but it didn't have that kind of Wall Street feel. It just felt like a Capital One, people started with, what can we do that's great for our customers? And if we do that, we'll be successful as a company which I felt was very motivating for me. And I enjoyed my time there. And then finally, of course, the decision to join Plaid. Tell us about that and, and a little bit too about Plaid, the, the mission part of it too and how that, pla- well, how that plays into your passion to make sure you're following your own mission. Yeah, I mean, well, Plaid, we are an infrastructure company. We're essentially, we were started as a company that would connect your financial technology applications to your bank account. And through that connection, data from your bank account can flow to the applications that you want to use. We are also sometimes called a, an aggregator. And so Plaid was started by a couple of founders in 2013 and first made its appearance known by doing this aggregation work. And so I knew about Plaid because at Capital One, 
you know, we were conscious that these aggregators were making connections to our accounts for customers. And, you know, honestly, in the early days of Plaid, it was not always super well received by banks. But when I was approached by Plaid, it was pretty clear that fintech is here to stay. And frankly, it's part of the future of financial services. And also that consumers you know, are demanding more ownership of their own data and the ability to use it how they wish. And so I had a sense when Plaid approached me that the company wanted to kind of be part of that future and you know, build better relationships with banks, build good relationships with regulators, and continue to expand to make you know, financial services accessible to everyone. So our mission is to unlock financial freedom for everyone. And I really feel like that is true, that we're making it possible for all of those applications out there to work and to serve customers, their own customers. So that's, that's, I feel good about that. That's very cool. In a way that consumers are now more and more used to every other aspect of their life working on their phone it just works they get their data they get their they can transfer money whatever it is it simply works in a consumerized way so probably not surprising that it might not have been all that welcome in the early days by the financial institutions but you know and i've seen the transition and the acceptance that that's the way of the future and that they need to be part of that future so that's really interesting so so, so tell me the first hundred days how do you wrap your arms around what do you have to do and what your priorities are going to be for the first three, six, 12 months? Yeah. Well, I mean, unless you're walking into a complete crisis, my advice is meet people and listen and learn because there's already people at every company who think they're doing the right thing. They may or may not be doing the right thing, but they believe they are. And so instead of just kind of coming in and telling them they're doing it wrong, listen and learn and and get to know people. And then you start to assemble your priorities. So in the case of my team, you know, the team was really, really talented, but they were not sufficiently resourced. Like people were working too hard. We hadn't put in place, you know, the kind of technology that you need to manage a legal department, legal operations. And so I am... You know, my priorities once I got here were to figure out like, what are the people gaps? What are the technology gaps? Because my theory or my approach is I don't want lawyers or other professionals spending time on mundane manual stuff. I want people to do the more interesting work because that's going to motivate them to do great work. And so my first hundred days, though, I really tried not to do very much. I tried to really learn. I think that's actually great advice. Because it's funny that there, are, I ask about that because there seems to be there's a default position you've got to make an impact in the first hundred days. So everyone says, Meredith, what a great hire we just made bringing her on board. But in fact, at 120 days, may look very different, <laughs> and so forth. So I think that's sensible. Tell me, so after let's say in the first six months, did you get a pretty good sense then of what what the gaps were in people and technology? And uh, what steps you need to take to to start bridging those gaps? Yeah, I think so. I mean, part of it is I'm building a team. So I have legal, but I also have risk compliance, privacy, and policy. And so one of the big things I wanted to do, given our COVID pandemic situation where everyone's working at home, was bring the team together as a team so that people could feel like they had 
you know, colleagues and allies across the whole group. So I've definitely been doing that kind of thing. But the other part of it has been beginning to build out our expertises so that we could have, you know, lawyers more embedded with our business partners so that they can be better lawyers and get deeper on the problems. So we've changed some of our structure of how we function and then filling gaps, you know, so we've hired some of our, you know, first lawyers who are specialists in certain areas like intellectual property, because we always kind of did that, but we didn't have the need in the past to have a real expert. A full-time person, yep. And if you were to say now, okay, now my three priorities are, is it still kind of people and tech gaps or is it starting to shift to, to other things? It is shifting. I mean, we're in a period of tremendous growth and we've got a lot of products that we're working on. So trying to help the legal team and the other teams support product development and getting things launched is a, a big priority now. And some of that has to do with you know, simple things like figuring out how we can do our commercial agreements more quickly and easily and stuff like that. But some of it's also just, you know, unblocking issues where you're, you're having to like figure out an answer in an ambiguous territory. So I'm doing a lot of that kind of thing. And then because we're growing and I care a lot about culture, I'm also doing a lot of work on, you know, the culture of the company. How do we preserve what's good about it? How do we maintain the diversity that we were able to develop in the early days so that we have, you know, just a really well-functioning place and it's a great workplace? I did do a recent interview with uh, with someone similarly in, in the fintech space and they talked about what COVID had done is brought the legal team much closer to the product team and so that they were working rather than kind of separate silo departments because they had to ship new products so quickly to deal with the challenges of the pandemic that they had this great collaboration between product and law and legal, which I hadn't really heard before. So I was just wondering, do you think about that? How do I get my, my team collaborating with what the core of the business is, product? You're in essentially a software business. Do you think about that and, and how you can be as closely aligned to the product side of the business? Yeah, very deliberately, I think about it. So we basically have now assigned one lawyer to each of our product groups. And that lawyer is supposed to be put that product team first above everything else. And then there's other lawyers who are putting plaid as a whole above the product. And that creates some creative tension. And I think that creative tension is actually valuable. And I've had to say to people, look, I don't want you to fight it out in front of the business partners, but like, let's have those discussions. Like, what are the, you know, what are the, what are the principles that are going to make the decision here? So that's one way. And the other way is as our customer base has grown, we've created dedicated points of contact for each kind of segment of our customer base within the legal team. Instead of one or two lawyers covering all commercial contracts, you know, there's the mid-market, there's the startup, there's the enterprise. And all of that is to enable, to your point, us to be faster, us to be deeper, and us to problem solve better. I mean, I've said to my lawyers who are embedded in the product teams, don't feel like all you have to talk about is legal issues. When you're talking to your business partners, you can talk about anything. You're a consumer too. You use our products. Like be a full-fledged member of the team. Yeah, and, and the it's funny. And the earlier they can do that, the earlier in the product life cycle, 
right at the design stage so as to be able to start but perhaps spotting issues that might be a problem down the track, the, the better. Then they end up being part of the product, really part of the product team, rather than product saying, okay, let's just let's get to a certain point before we show before we show legal anything. And then the the usual, you know, tension or sparring that happens because product has invested so much at that time, don't want to give up much. And legal says, well, if you only just came to a bit earlier. And uh, so avoiding that, I think, in any fast-paced kind of software type environment is key. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And actually, I'm lucky because the lawyers who were here before I arrived were pretty well, they had great relationships. I mean, we were a startup company, so they had great relationships with you know engineers and product managers. And so there was already good foundation. I don't think people thought of legal as being, what do they call it? Like the office of no or something? Yeah, that's right. The, de- the department of no. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, good. You didn't walk into the department of no. <laughs> is that what you- Exactly. But you need to you need to still keep building like that this is acceptable for the lawyers to be close to the business people. And then you need to make sure that if people are worried about things, that there's an escalation path. So I'm always very clear, like people can come to me about things. I want to hear both sides of the argument, but that's what I'm here for. I mean, I may not be doing the the specific legal work on the issue, but I, the good fortune of having been around law for a while and practiced for a while is I do have some judgment. And so let's have a discussion about the right outcome. Meredith, how, how do you think about developing or developing and retaining talent and building great teams. What do you look for maybe when hiring and what do you hope to, what do you strive for during the time of, you know, when someone is part of your team? Obviously, it's great if you can find someone who's really, really capable and also really knows the subject matter. But if you can't find that, start with, do they have good skills? Like, are they a good communicator, analytical, et cetera? But then I really look for more soft skills. Are they someone who has a growth mindset? I really, I do not want to hire someone who doesn't have a growth mindset because I think that's been critical to my success in my life. The second thing is, especially if you're going to be in a startup environment, do they have resilience? Because things change and we, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to seize the opportunities that are there And then I guess two other things. One is I like people who want to be able to make decisions because I don't have any desire to micromanage anyone. I really want people who will come to me and say, Meredith, here's the problem. This is what I think we should do. And so if they don't tell me what they think we should do, I will say, what's your recommendation? And then I think the last thing is, you know what? Good people. Hire good people. Like there's a lot of talented lawyers out there. You do not have to hire a jerk. I call that the good egg. Are they a good egg? Okay, because life's too short not to have, or not, life's too short to have jerks in the team. Are they a good egg? Yep, no, I agree entirely. Tell me about mentoring and have you had any mentors in your career? Any so, any particular kind of moments, mentoring moments that have been formative for you? Yeah, I definitely have had good mentors. I mean, I'll start with my judges, Judge Friedman and Judge Wald, who I clerked for. Both of them, you know, at every kind of decision point in my life, I turned to to ask for advice. And what was great is they cared, you know, they showed me they cared. And I also, you know, frankly, 
I don't know whether mentors is the right word, but you know, I felt very inspired by working with Elizabeth Warren at the CFPB and by working with Rich Cordray at the CFPB. Both of them, you know, really committed to trying to help the public and caring about people who don't have a voice, who don't have the ability to make things happen for themselves. I just found it very inspiring to be able to work with people like that. And yes, they have been people who continue to be present in my life. Um, and I really value those relationships. Those influences that want to make you be a better version of yourself, they're the best. When they make you reflect on what you spend time on, what you care about, what you can do, and say, no, I can actually do better than that, that is so impactful. And the more you I just think you're surrounding yourself with people like that or, or, or take making opportunities to be influenced by people like that inevitably lead to, I think, a better version of yourself. Yeah, and well, frankly, part of what I learned from each of those people relates to this idea of the growth mindset. I mean, each one of them, there are times when I had hard discussions with them, when I disagreed with them or I had to tell them a hard message and observing how they dealt with that, I learned from that. You know, that it's important to hear people who disagree. It's important to like hear diverse perspectives. It's important to challenge yourself because, you know, as smart as any one of us might be, none of us know everything. And you need to have all of the input in order to make good decisions. Yeah, no, I agree. Wrapping up now, Meredith, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Look, my main focus right now, honestly, is trying to help Plaid kind of go to its next level. And that's a mix of all of the things we've been talking about. I think as I think about like what worries me, I want us to, I kind of like want us to do everything faster, you know? And so there's this part of me that's like, how can we do it safely, but faster? But more quickly. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like every GC out there. I think about what's the cybersecurity risk? What's the regulatory risk? But Mostly, I mean, one of the nice things about working at a company that's not huge is I have an idea of what's going on and I can feel good about how we're doing our business. So now I just want us to keep doing it. And finally, Meredith, advice that you'd give to your 25-year-old self? I mean, I would say be authentic. Be yourself. Because if you try to be someone else, you're not going to come across well and you're not going to do your best. And you know, don't let the world decide who you are. You be who you are and do your best. And if you do your best, it's going to show and you'll get the opportunities you want in life and both personally and professionally. I couldn't agree with with you more because if you're not authentic, it'll catch you sooner or later. And often the later it happens, the kind of harder it is. And yeah, so I, I think that's fantastic advice to finish off on. Meredith, it's been fantastic to have you on board. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was wonderful to meet you, and I, I was enjoyed the discussion as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.